0: welcome to Word Online. Hello and welcome to series 12 and episode 15. This is a metaphor that Jesus gives about the vine and the branches. He tells a story of a vine and explains some important realities for his disciples. We're in John chapter 15 and we'll be reading from verses 1 to 25 in just a few minutes, if you've been following series 12, you'll know that we are now in the middle of the events of the Last Supper. And the Last Supper is on Thursday of the last week of Jesus's life. And an incredible amount has happened that leads to this point. And the very significant events of the next 24 hours are going to be absolutely critical Jesus is going to be arrested tried and executed and then buried very very quickly but let's just wind the clock back a little bit and remind ourselves of the broader context of this final week of Jesus's life in earlier series we pointed out the fact that Jesus made a very determined effort to head for Jerusalem for this final series of events in his life he knew Intuitively, by divine revelation and understanding of the future that it was going to be necessary for him to come into final confrontation with the Jewish religious leaders, which would lead to his execution. Ultimately, he warned his disciples of this and he came to Jerusalem on this occasion very clearly set on bringing that confrontation out into the open And so in series 11, we looked at the events of Palm Sunday, the the day in which Jesus came into Jerusalem with a mighty crowd around him, proclaiming him as the Messiah. Shortly after, he'd raised Lazarus from the dead in nearby Bethany, a village just a few kilometers away. There was a huge sense of excitement, a big crowd in Jerusalem because it was the feast of Passover, one of their major religious feasts. And then the events of that week followed on very dramatically each day. Monday, he was in the temple confronting the market traders who are working for the priestly authorities in the Sanhedrin and corrupting the temple with their materialism and monopoly trading. Then on Tuesday, he was in the temple again debating with the religious authorities and left with his disciples, giving them very clear teaching about judgment that's coming on Israel and about his future second coming. We saw that at the beginning of series 12 when we studied extensively in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. The story then moves on to the Wednesday where another decisive moment happens. Jesus is in nearby Bethany, which appears to be the town that he uses as his base while he's In Jerusalem during the week, he goes there every evening, as far as we can tell. And there's a meal put on for him in the home of a man called Simon the leper, where Mary, one of his disciples from Bethany, the sister of Lazarus and Martha, anoints Jesus in prophetic preparation for his burial. But that particular event triggers the crucial confrontation because... Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' disciples, is present. He criticises Mary's action, but we find out that he is already preparing to betray Jesus, and he leaves that event, goes to the religious authorities in Jerusalem, and offers to betray Jesus by leading them to Jesus' location at some discreet time away from the crowds. They offer him money. And he leaves them, having agreed with them firmly that he'll be back soon to betray Jesus. So events are bound to accelerate once Judas has made that decision. And that's led us to the Last Supper, which we've been looking at in the last six episodes. We've seen the gathering together of the disciples to celebrate this meal, which was a Passover meal, a traditional family meal. And then we saw Jesus dramatically, towards the beginning of the meal, taking the form of a servant and washing his disciples' feet as a symbolic gesture of his love for them and telling them something about the nature of leadership and service to other people. Then we saw in Luke 22 how Jesus took the bread and the wine from that meal And created a symbolic event which he asked them to repeat, a symbolic meal, which he asked them to repeat regularly in the life of the church, to institutionalise this as something that's part of the church life, which we call now the Lord's Supper, Communion or the Eucharist. And this event is to remember Jesus' death using the symbols of bread and wine for his body and his literal physical blood shed for us. Jesus then went on to teach about servant leadership in the kingdom, and then we saw Judas departing in the middle of the meal, just leaving, very unexpectedly. And he was heading straight to the religious authorities to tell them of Jesus's movements that evening and to tell them where they're likely to find him a little bit later on in the evening. In the last two episodes we've been in John's Gospel where we are now and we pointed out the fact that John gives an extended description of Jesus' teaching to his disciples in these critical moments when they were really quite troubled by all the events and all the implications of what was going on, what was happening to Judas, what was going to happen to Jesus, was he really going to die? Were the authorities going to move against him? Was Jesus going to bring in his kingdom and turn the tables on them? There were really uncertain as to what was going to happen. So in John 14, in the last two episodes, we've just seen Jesus comforting his disciples, explaining the way of salvation, reminding them of their eternal destiny, reassuring them of his love for them. And in the last episode, particularly pointing out that he is going to send the Holy Spirit, although he won't be with them after his death and resurrection, He'll depart from this world. He'll send the Holy Spirit. The Father and the Son will send the Spirit, described as the Spirit of truth and as the advocate in that chapter, the second half of John 14. So there's been a wonderful teaching to reassure the disciples that the very living presence of God through the Holy Spirit is going to be with them continually once Jesus has departed. Departures and separation are always very difficult emotions for humans to go through I'm sure you have had that experience in your own life and the disciples were beginning to realize they were not going to be with Jesus for very much longer and that evoked a lot of deep emotions anyway now Jesus moves on and uses this metaphor of the vine to help his disciples understand how their relationship with him is going to be really lived out in the time after he has gone. So this metaphor or this story is a vivid way of just describing how God is going to work with them in time to come. Let's read the first eight verses of John 15. I am the true vine Unless you remain in me, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Now, Jesus takes this metaphor of the vine. And before we go into the details of it, let's just for a moment think of the significance of that to a Jewish audience at the time. Now. Vines and vineyards were central to the agricultural life of the Middle East in those days and central to the agricultural life of Israel. It was a major form of agriculture. Wine was widely drunk and used in social life and they could be very profitable. And vines and vineyards appear in Jesus' teaching, particularly in his parables. For example, the parables of the workers in the vineyard in Matthew chapter 20. But you will have noticed a number of parables are centred around a vineyard and the workers in the vineyard and the owner of the vineyard and what happens in that situation. And sometimes the Old Testament describes the Jewish people as God's vine. And so there's a connection between Israel and the vine, or even a vineyard, in the Jewish scriptures. So these are useful points of background. But a particular thing to notice, I think, is something that many of us will be aware of anyway, that for vines to be productive, we have to prune them and look after them very, very carefully. They are prone to grow in the appropriate good growing conditions very fast and to multiply branches and, and so pruning is important. And pruning is important because it directs the energy of the plants towards the development of the grapes rather than the reproduction of foliage and branches. Now, that's a really critical point and is, of course, true of lots of other plants. I think of my own garden at the moment. I'm speaking and recording this in the summer here in the UK. And I am every week pruning plants that are climbers that are growing along the fence in my garden. And if I don't prune the shoots that keep coming in all sorts of different places, then I can't get the plant to develop along the fence in the way that I want so that's a very vivid image in my mind and many of us will be familiar with growing horticulture and growing vines and so on and you will be aware of this so this issue of pruning is very important and would be well understood by those who are listening What about the metaphor of the vine? Jesus explains it very clearly here. In this metaphor, he is the vine. He is the source of life. And the disciples are the branches that develop from the vine. And his father, God the Father, is described as the gardener whose looking after the vines and cultivating them. And the gardener wants the branches to be fruitful. And in order to be fruitful, they must be focusing on the development of the fruit, the grapes. In order to do that, the branches have to be pruned or cleaned up regularly in order to be really productive towards the production of grapes and ultimately the production of wine. And so the gardener's activities are described here in two ways. He's pruning the healthy branches, but the unproductive branches are being cut out altogether. Now, we can deduce from this that the True branches, the productive branches, are the disciples and all who follow them. Other disciples in other ages like you and me. We're being pruned. But the unproductive branches probably represents nominal Christians. People who nominally follow Jesus. They don't actually have any living faith in their hearts and they are at risk of being cut out altogether. Now, it's interesting that that should be stated by Jesus so soon after Judas Iscariot has just left the group of 12, as I described a few moments ago, and as we saw in earlier episodes. He's literally left. And what happens to Judas is that having betrayed Jesus... He subsequently has a tremendous fit of remorse, and he realizes he's done a terrible thing. He returns the coins that he's been given to the authorities, and he goes and commits suicide. That branch has been cut out. It's unproductive. It's nominal. It's not really functioning as a branch should do. It's not productive. So the key theme of this passage is for the branch to be focused on the vine because the branch gets its life from the vine. So here's the metaphor, bearing in mind this is just a metaphor it's a symbolic story, it's giving us general truths but it's making a vivid image in our minds of how our christian life actually functions. Our life depends on Christ, the branch depends on the vine. Christ made our salvation We depend on him. We should be seeking to obey him and to follow him. So the branch is trying to stay connected to the vine. The father will prune us. He will bring circumstances in our lives that shape us. Sometimes difficult circumstances, complex, painful circumstances will shape us and guide us to be productive. That's really what's The metaphor is telling us verses nine to 17 is a bit of a commentary on what has already been said. As the father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you'll remain in my love, just as I have kept my father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete my command is this love each other as i have loved you greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends you are my friends if you do what i command i no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business instead i've called you friends for everything So the question arises, what does remaining in Jesus actually mean? Some Bible translations in English use a more traditional word, abiding in Jesus. What does remaining in Jesus actually mean? Let's try and turn the metaphor into a practical reality for you and me. Verse seven gives us the beginning of the answer. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, my words remain in you. That's interesting. So remaining in Jesus involves a really close connection with his teaching, literally his words. That's a way to be fruitful. Now, I believe that passionately because I believe in our discipleship, there's nothing more important to us than to be Fully connected to everything that Jesus said and taught. His teaching is very diverse, sometimes complex, very challenging, sometimes incredibly straightforward. But it's life transforming. It is what turns us into disciples rather than mere observers of Christianity or merely nominal believers or people who sit in churches or people who think about religion or philosophy. Disciples are followers and his words have to remain in us. But it's my observation that many people in churches and many Christians don't know a great deal about Jesus's teaching. They've heard it from a distance, but haven't always studied it closely or sought to follow it. And so his words need to remain in us in order for us to be fruitful. We also need to appreciate the depth of his love verse 9 as the father has loved me so I have loved you now remain in my love now this is a really interesting addition not only is Jesus' teaching important but the actual nature of his love needs to be appreciated by us so in order to do that we have to keep reminding ourselves what he did for us and keep giving back our devotion to him in worship so it turns out that worship, The act of worship, in whatever form it comes, strengthens our fruitfulness and strengthens our spiritual life and strengthens our discipleship. We need to appreciate His love. And verse 10 we need to keep His commandments. So, to remain in Jesus, we need to engage with His teaching. Appreciate his love in worship and obey his commands to us. One of those commands is a very specific one that emerges here. Verse 12 and 13. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. So one characteristic of mature discipleship is to have a really great love For fellow Christians and believers. Now that can be hard. We can fall out with them. We can disagree with them. We can be in different churches. We can have conflicts. We can find their personalities difficult. But we're called to love our fellow believers. And the disciples here are described as having become Jesus' friends. They're not servants from a distance. He's told them the inside story of what's going on and he's calling us to be fruitful verses 18 to 25 is the final section if the world hates you keep in mind that it hated me first if you belong to the world it would love you as its own as it is you do not belong to the world But I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name. For they did not know the one who sent me. They hated me without reason. Now here Jesus turns to the crucial question of opposition. Jesus has given many positives about the future earlier on. He's promised eternal security in John 14. He's promised the Holy Spirit in John 14. Here in John 15 he's promised fruitfulness in the vine. But now he's warning of the inevitability of opposition. Jesus was persecuted, so his followers will be persecuted. He was opposed, his followers will be opposed. Disciples have been called out of the world. That is, they're not part of the world system. They don't share the same values as the world. Don't be surprised if you face opposition. And these words are spoken just at the moment where that hatred towards Jesus was reaching a boiling point in his opponents. Because as he's speaking these words here, Judas Iscariot is either on his way to or has arrived at the meeting point with the religious authorities where their mutual hatred of Jesus is going to lead to drastic intervention and cause him to be killed and executed. So these are very poignant and powerful words in the context. And Jesus concludes by quoting a verse from Psalm 69, verse 4, verse 25. But this is to fulfil what was written in their law. They hated me without reason. Now, this text was spoken by David in Psalm 69 about himself, King David, the great king of the Old Testament era who describes the fact that in his human experience, sometimes there was opposition that really had no reason. He was thinking of all sorts of different things that had happened in his life. But the primary thing that was probably in his mind is that when he was a servant working in the court of the previous king, King Saul, King Saul became so jealous of him that he became deeply Against him. He started hating him and tried to kill him. Tried to kill him in court. Threw a spear at him one day. Tried to assassinate him in his bed. Forced him to leave the court and go into the wilderness. Then chased him in the wilderness with his army. And David said, What have I done against Saul? Nothing. He hated me without reason. Now, just as that was true of David in his day, so it's true of Jesus in his day. Jesus is the son of David. Prophecies about David are often fulfilled in a a further fulfillment in the life of Jesus. We call this typological fulfillment of prophecy. There's quite a few examples in the Gospels. Here's a good one. Just as Saul and others hated David without reason. They were jealous of him. His anointing, his power, his popularity, his success, his calling by God. So... The religious leaders and many others were jealous of Jesus. They were the leaders, but he had the power. He had the following. He performed the miracles that they couldn't perform. He could teach without having studied in the way that they had studied. Jealousy, anger came in. He was going to displace them if he was allowed to continue. And so they hated him without reason and Jesus warns sometimes people will oppose Christians for no rational reason at all just out of some instinctive emotion or jealousy or fear but Jesus encourages them that they can be steadfast in all this and they can get through this this can be part of the pruning that God the Father allows in our lives, even through opposition. This point is made very clearly in Hebrews chapter 12, where the father disciplines his children like a human father disciplines his own sons. In conclusion, then. All disciples are called to a life of fruitfulness. That is your calling. If you're a follower of Jesus, the question I would ask you is how fruitful is your life? And how does this passage guide you towards a more fruitful life? All of us will also experience the father, our father, pruning our lives, so to speak, shaping our lives, sometimes in ways that we don't like through circumstances, through our own mistakes, through unexpected oppositions and setbacks. But we need to trust our heavenly father to obey Jesus, to love him and in all this whatever happens in life verse 11 is a very important and exciting promise i have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete it's a joyful thing to be a disciple of jesus with all the ups and downs of life that follow we can draw near to the vine be fruitful allow the Father to prune us, face all the difficulties of life. And in the midst of it, we find a deep joy because we know this is what we're made to be, followers of Jesus. So can I encourage you to embrace wholeheartedly that life of discipleship and let this amazing metaphor of the vine and the branches help you in understanding how God is shaping your life today. You have been listening to Martin Charlesworth for Word Online. To find out more, visit wordonline.org.